Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 162. With Professor of Psychiatry and Medical Director of Addiction Medicine at Stanford University, Dr. Anna Lemke. You may have seen her in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, where she discusses the addictive nature of social media, explaining that it taps into our basic biological imperative to connect with other people that directly affects the release of dopamine and the reward pathway. And she warns us that there's no doubt that a vehicle like social media, which optimizes this connection between people, is going to have the potential for addiction. Dr. Lemke is more concerned with our children and her children who appear in the documentary with her. And on today's podcast, she'll arm us with the knowledge that she shares with her own children daily. Her book, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, is a good overview of what addiction is and the dangers of prescription drugs. Her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, that was just released last month, explores the exciting new scientific discoveries that explain why the relentless pursuit of pleasure leads to pain and what to do about it. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of our listeners have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high performance strategies that we can use to improve our own productivity in our schools, our sports and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or online, a student or parent working in the corporate space. This week's interview with Dr. Anna Lemke on her new book, Dopamine Nation, is based on true stories of her patients falling prey to addiction and finding their way out again, with stories that many of us might find to be shocking. But she explains that they're just extreme versions of what we're all capable of. When reading this book or listening to this interview, I encourage you to think about your own life, your own behaviors, and what you might be running from, since we're all running from something. And like we've mentioned many times before on this podcast, awareness is the key to making any behavior change that can have lasting impact on our productivity and results. My hope is that we can all take an honest look and find places where we might be leaking energy to close those gaps and then redirect that energy towards our goals. We covered the topic of addiction at the start of this year with Anish Chowdhury on episode 102 on mental health, well-being, and meditation, overcoming addiction using your brain. And I first mentioned Dr. Lemke on episode 157, overcoming digital addiction using neuroscience, after a discussion with our friends about technology use led me to Dr. Lemke. This episode was a popular one with over 700 downloads in the first few days of release. 
And then when I posted that I was working on this episode over Labor Day weekend, I had so many messages from friends and colleagues who shared with me that they were very interested in this topic. I think this is something that we should all be aware of since most of us have never had any training on this topic of addiction, yet we all know someone who struggles in some way. We can all learn so much about ourselves with this information, understanding how chemical, behavioral, and even digital addictions are formed and broken can help us to all navigate our lives with a deeper level of awareness to help us to close those gaps where we waste energy and improve our productivity. Just a reminder, I would consider myself a researcher sharing preventative and supplemental ideas and strategies related to the most current research on the brain, on health and wellness and education. Always seek the advice of your physician or qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have about your health. And remember, you should never disregard medical advice or delay seeking it because of something you've learned through this podcast. Keep in mind, Dr. Lemke recommends her 30-day dopamine fast for people with less severe addictions and anyone who's struggling with a serious drug or alcohol addiction should seek further treatment from their medical provider. Back to the episode. Dr. Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, shows us what happens when we get too much of a good thing, but we can use this understanding to counteract the effects of this neurotransmitter, dopamine in our brain, bringing us back to balance and productivity. In part one of the book called The Pursuit of Pleasure, Dr. Lemke gives some examples of how we're all constantly trying to distract ourselves from the present moment to be entertained and that we're all running from pain. We'll do almost anything to distract ourselves from ourselves and that we've lost the ability to tolerate even minor forms of discomfort. When I thought about this part of the book, I couldn't agree more. Thinking of all the times I grab my phone to distract myself from something, anything difficult that comes my way instead of staying in the present moment and dealing with it. Chapter three goes deeper into the science of brain chemistry, discussing two key features of the effects of dopamine, the brain's tendency to seek homeostasis and the development of tolerance. Part two, self-binding, Dr. Lemke describes some encounters with her patients and how to keep addictive behaviors under control. She covers dopamine fasting with the acronym to help us to learn how to use this 30-day fast to reset our brains. Dr. Lemke will explain her 30-day dopamine fast for people with less severe addictions, and she says that she often sees people return to whatever it is they're doing in a controlled way. Dopamine, the D stands for data. What are you using, how much, and how often? The O in dopamine is objectives. What does it do for you? The P is for problems or the downsides that it causes. A is for abstinence. Stop using whatever you're doing for a month and see what happens. M is mindfulness. Be prepared to feel worse before you feel better. I is for insight. Abstaining from our drug of choice gives us incredible insight that we just can't see without stopping. What did you learn? N is for next steps, moving forward without the drug or behavior, even when you miss it. Can you do that? And E is for experiment. Go back out into the world, experiment and see what works and what doesn't. 
if there's something you want to change in your life, try going without it for 30 days and see what happens. Only you will know if this will work for you or not. Dr. Lemke noted that even when moderation is achievable, many of our patients report it's too exhausting to continue and they ultimately opt for abstinence in the long haul. In part three of the book, The Pursuit of Pain, Dr. Lemke explores the opposite side of the equation, seeking out things that are painful in order for the brain to tend to increase feelings of pleasure immediately afterward in an attempt to regain homeostasis. She explains the pain side of addiction and the importance of finding balance, radical honesty with ourselves, and self-awareness because people who lean too hard and too long on the side of pain can also end up in a persistent dopamine deficit state. After releasing episode 157 that explained Dr. Lemke's work and her 30-day dopamine fast, I almost wanted to just move on past this topic. As I often say, there are entire podcasts dedicated to addiction and they do a much better job than I ever could. But there's another reason I would rather skip it, and that's because it's a difficult topic. It's much easier to move on past it than talk about something I'm still trying to learn and understand myself, because we weren't taught this topic in school, and it's hard to figure out how to handle it when it shows up in our life. I still remember the extent of my education on this topic in ninth grade when our PE teacher said, don't drink alcohol to cover up your problems. I remember she appeared to be uncomfortable with the topic, but it's such an important one. If you ask anyone, we all know someone who suffers with a chemical addiction, alcohol or drugs. And since this topic was never a part of our schooling, it's easy to criticize what we don't understand, let alone recognize it in our own behaviors. When I first encountered someone with an addiction, it was around 20 years ago, and I couldn't understand why they couldn't have just one or two drinks and then call it a night. Why did they have to keep going? What's going on in the addicted brain? I had so many questions. And this was years before we could just type our questions into Google and get hundreds of articles to help us, like Dr. Lemke's work or even Dr. Amon's work on the addicted brain. So I would go to our local library and find books that explained addiction to gain some sort of understanding. I wish Dr. Lemke's book was there as it wasn't easy to navigate this topic and not being one to sweep anything under a rug. I found some ideas and solutions for this person to enter into a local rehab program to get further help. But this opened up a can of worms with a problem that was never discussed and it made me really popular in that family. But this understanding gave me a new level of awareness that would help someone else years later. This awareness helped my husband with one of his best friends from high school who called one day to confide in him that he had a heroin addiction and he was entering a faith-based rehabilitation program but wanted one of his friends to know what was really going on with him. His initial reaction would have been to say, what the heck is wrong with you? Heroin addiction? Are you an idiot? How did this happen? But because of all the time I spent researching at the library, I explained to him how addictions happen, often beginning innocently, using painkillers after a surgery, or in his friend's case, using uppers to help him through his busy days. This explanation helped him to talk with his friend with more understanding and his friend did well in recovery, 
helping many others over a few years until one day it beat him and he was gone. I know this is a complex topic, often resulting in death like we saw with my husband's high school friend or like we see with celebrities who've been unable to break the cycle. And the pandemic has magnified this issue for those who are stuck in their homes all of the time. But with the understanding of our brain in mind, my hope is that this topic is no longer swept under the rug, but talked about openly to find solutions with our brain in mind. Let's meet Dr. Anna Lemke and explore her new book, Dopamine Nation Together, to gain a deeper understanding for those who struggle with serious addiction to those with less severe and see if her 30-day dopamine fast could be a solution to tighten up the gaps and improve all of our productivity, health, and well-being. Welcome, Dr. Lemke. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me on the podcast today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, I've got to tell you, Dr. Lemke, that before I hit send on your email when I invited you, I thought twice because I was a little bit nervous that you were actually going to write back and you would say yes, and then I'd actually have to talk about this topic that's a little bit difficult and I've avoided going deeper into this. So I just want to thank you for saying yes so quickly and for allowing me to be more authentic and open on the podcast. Oh my goodness. You're very welcome. I'm always happy to facilitate authenticity and openness if I can. And although it is a hard topic, I really hope that Dopamine Nation is a source of positive inspiration for people because, um, you know, I do think that these are, there are practical things that we can do to help ourselves in this regard. Well, for sure, for sure. Well, before we get to Dopamine Nation and the questions I have for you, I've got a question that ties into where I first saw you. And it was in that movie, The Social Dilemma, which scared the living daylights out of me, by the way. I have all these notes on my phone about how the tech uh, creators had to create code to get themselves from being addicted to the apps they created. And it was terrifying. But uh, you talk about how social media is a drug that directly affects the release of dopamine and the reward pathway. And you talk about with all your knowledge and experience, you are still worried about your own kids who spend time using these apps. And I know your kids are a bit older since the film was released, but what did you tell your kids daily about how our brains respond to certain apps on our phones? Yeah, so this has been, uh, as you can imagine, a dinner conversation topic when we're able to have family dinners, which is less and less often now with our kids as teenagers running around. Uh, but we've been talking about these issues since, since they were little, in part because on both sides of um, our family, my side and my husband's side, we have serious alcohol addiction, and that makes our kids more vulnerable. And also just because, you know, we're living in a vulnerable age. And um, just because I wrote the book doesn't mean that I've cornered the knowledge on um, how to handle this with our own kids. It's a daily struggle. I mean, I can tell you kind of what we did and where we are now, if that's of interest. Definitely. Um, okay. Well, I mean, what, what we decided to do, my husband and I, was that we, we ourselves, now this is our, our eldest was born in 2001. We decided to not have smartphones ourselves and not get Wi-Fi to the house. 
we decided it would be harder to moderate our use than to simply not have those devices and that kind of access from the home. He and I both had big computer setups at work. And so we really kept it very um, siloed and discreet, our, our online engagement. And I have to say that that worked really well. Um, you know, when our kids were little, um, they didn't spend a lot of time on screens. They did develop, um, you know, other other skills and outlets. We did a lot of outdoor activities and nature and, and sports. We really emphasized, you know, positive uh, exercise and sleep and things like that, family time, um, not on screens. But by the time our eldest got got into high school, she basically came home and said, I cannot function as a high school student without Wi-Fi to the, to the house. And when we investigated that, we found that that was true. Mm -hmm. So we got Wi-Fi to the house. And then she came home a couple of weeks later, having purchased her very own iPhone and her own iPhone plan and said, I can't function socially as a teenager without my own phone. And really, Andrea, it's been downhill since then. <laughs> no, we just got a phone for my seventh grader um, who said the same thing. She said, I can't do these problems in class. They say, take out your phones. And she was the only one sitting there. So it got to a point where we had to cave, but we were yeah. on the same vein as you trying to hold off as long as we could. Right. And I think, you know, that's what I would, I do think that the, these problems to a certain extent can be addressed in the nuclear family. Um, and my advice to parents is to um, severely limit screen time for your children as long as you can, which is about to age 12 or 13. And then essentially, you know, it's over between the schools and their friends, they will see what they will see. But if you can have the dialogue um, about it, um, you know, and, and what I mean, what I mean by the dialogue is what I write about in Dopamine Nation, explain the neuroscience to kids, explain that this can be an addictive drug, um, you know, talk about, uh, about what are some of the warning signs and how to limit the sort of um, escalating use toward addiction, um, and the importance simply of doing that, right, even just having the conversation about the fact that it is a drug and that we must be mindful about the way that we're using these devices is, is a really good starting place. Um, and then just continue to have these conversations, continue to reflect back to um, you know, our children, what we see about their use, which concerns us, um, what we hear from others about what they're putting online, which concerns us. Cause you know, invariably there will be mistakes made. Um, and so, you know, it's just a constant, constant discussion at home. Well, that was a good one to open up with. And I'm going to get right into dopamine nation to now tie in the brain science. And I really thought I had seen it all. And I'm sure you see so much more in your practice of what we do to distract ourselves from whatever is painful in our lives and prevent us from being in the present moment. And you give some great examples in the book that drill down this point. And then I thought about how often I grab my phone to distract me from difficult times, whether it's serious life challenges, I'll look at it because I don't wanna deal with that in this present moment from minor life challenges, like something scary on TV. I grab my phone because I don't want to look at it. And so, you know, and you talk about all the different instances like escaping drugs, alcohol, romance novels, binge watching Netflix, whatever it is that we do, 
why does this only make our challenges in life worse that we're not able to be in the present moment? Yeah, great question. I think to really understand why we need to pay attention to this problem and why it's non-trivial um, is to understand the neuroscience of pleasure and pain. And the way that I explain this to my patients and to my medical students is, is I say, imagine that um, in your brain, there's a balance, kind of like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And in its resting state, unlike a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, that balance is level with the ground. That balance represents how our brain processes pleasure and pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. When we do something pleasurable or reinforcing, let's say in my case, I eat a piece of chocolate, my balance tilts slightly to the side of pleasure. I get a little release of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter in the brain, and I feel good. But one of the overriding rules governing this balance is that it wants to stay level. It doesn't want to remain very long to the side of pleasure or the side of pain. So the brain will immediately respond to that or adapt to it by down-regulating our own dopamine production and down-regulating our own dopamine transmission. I kind of imagine this as these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance, so they stay on till it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's the after effect, the come down, the hangover, that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored and we're back at our sort of level set point for experiencing pleasure and pain, and that's fine, then we move on. But if we continue to tap our phones or watch you know, Netflix or read romance novels or eat more chocolate, we eventually end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they could fill this whole room. And when we've reached that point, we've essentially changed our set point for experiencing pleasure and pain, such that we need more and more of the pleasurable stimulus and more potent forms to get the same effect. And importantly, when we're not ingesting that pleasurable substance, our balance is tilted sharply to the side of pain, we experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal, anxiety, irritability, restlessness, insomnia, mental preoccupation with our drug. And it can stay like that for a very, very long time. So this is not just about tolerance and needing more to get the same effect. It's about the fact that when we're not using, we are essentially in a dopamine deficit state, right? We're walking around unhappy. I see so many patients coming in reporting depression, anxiety, insomnia, wanting me to help them. One of the first interventions that I make is to have them eliminate their drug of choice, whatever it is for one month. And I warn them they're, they're gonna feel worse before they feel better because it'll be the pleasure pain balance tilted here. But if they can just abstain for long enough, those neuroadaptation gremlins will hop off the balance and homeostasis will be restored and they'll again be able to take pleasure in life's more modest rewards. So ultimately the thesis of Dopamine Nation is that both as individuals and as a larger society, we have inundated ourselves with so much dopamine that we've reset our pleasure pain pathways to the side of pain, making it harder for us to experience pleasure and more likely that we will experience pain. 
Got it. And so when I was reading this, I just want to like explain it so that I think I've got it. So I understand withdrawals because you don't have what you like. It feels crappy. You you feel the void. But what's the other side? I don't know if I've ever felt the other side where you have too much dopamine. How do you know you're in a surplus? What does that feel like? Well, essentially, the, the this essential feature between things that are addictive and things that are not are things that are addictive release a lot of dopamine all at once. So they tilt the balance very hard and very fast to the pleasure side. That's essentially the rush or the euphoric feeling or just the escapist feeling that we get from highly reinforcing substances. So that, that is a dopamine surplus, mm. but the point is, and that, that feels good, right? I mean, you know, when I'm reading romance novels, I'm not thinking about my life and my problems and my kids' problems and mm. my patients, right? I'm, I'm in another world and it feels really good. Mm. And I want to maintain that feeling, but I can't inevitably the real world calls or the book comes to an end. And when I have to close that book, there's the come down. The point being that what goes up must come down. There's no free lunch. There's a price that we pay for intense pleasure. And it may be subtle, but it's, it's almost always there. Um, and then more importantly, if we then continue to try to maintain ourselves in that pleasure place, which our brains are really not adapted for, then we get these gremlins camped out on the pain side, all in an effort to restore a level balance or restore homeostasis, which is where our brain always wants to be. It wants to go physiologically, go back down to its baseline and it will work very hard to do that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but, but I, I'm, did, was that what you were asking? Yeah, I just want to know. I know it's easy to recognize withdrawals because we all know what those are like. But I just don't know if I could put it into words when people come to see you and they're anxious and they're, they're saying, I need some help. Do they know it's because they've played too many video games or do, do they know that? Do we know what dopamine surplus is? Yeah, great question. So they almost always don't recognize that as a potential cause. The way they experience it is that their cannabis or alcohol or video games are self-medicating the depression and the anxiety and the insomnia and the boredom and whatever it is. What they don't realize is that by continually engaging in those high reward behaviors, they're essentially driving or creating the states of anxiety, depression, and insomnia. That, that is very hard to see. Right. All they know is that they feel bad in general and using their drug gives them some temporary relief, which of course it does because their balance is tilted to the side of pain and it restores homeostasis. Now, originally their drug might've done this for them and made them happy. But again, with repeated use, it, all it does is bring them back here, but it's all relative, right? The brain is working through this, you know, it's a different theory of relativity to kind of restore homeostasis, which is why this period of absence is so important because it allows people to really see true cause and effect. Like when we're in the cycle, we don't see it, but mm -hmm. when we get some distance from it, we can look back and say, oh, wow, I feel so much better now that I've abstained for a month. 
And I look back and I, it's kind of crazy how I was using drug X, Y, or Z. Like it's sort of a shock to me. You right. know? And so it's that it's abstaining that really gives that flash of insight. So then let's go to the, the guy that came to you with the video games and he went back after he took his month off. And to me, I, I was reading it and I was thinking, really, could he really go back and do the same thing? Isn't he eventually going to go back to, to staying up to 2 a.m.? Or, you know, for people that try, they get to the E and experiment and they try to see, can they go back and use it in moderation? I know an alcoholic definitely could not go and and use alcohol in moderation. So how do you know? Do you just know you go back and you try it? You're like, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Well, so the answer is is complicated. Let me see if I can um, break it apart. So so first of all, even even among people who have an alcohol addiction, it is possible in some cases for those individuals after a sustained period of abstinence to go back to using alcohol in moderation. We used to think that was not the case. And certainly for a severe alcoholic, they can never go back. And even a brief experiment or two will reveal that to be the case. But I have had patients, and it's also established in the scientific literature, that there are some patients who meet criteria for alcohol use disorder, which is what we call it in the medical field, alcohol or alcoholism is called alcohol use disorder can go back to using in moderation after a period of abstinence, as long as they put a lot of self-binding strategies in place. So they, for example, make sure they never have alcohol in the house. They make sure they only, you know, use alcohol in certain circumstances. They only drink beer and never hard liquor. They keep it to very strict amounts. They record those amounts. They go to group meetings where other people are trying to moderate and they talk about, you know, how much they've consumed. So it's typically effortful, right? It's not like, oh, you know, yeah, no problem. The other thing is we have medicines now that make it possible for people who have alcohol use disorder to not be as reinforced by drinking alcohol so that now they drink and it's like, it's okay, but it's not as great as it was. And then that also makes them not want to drink more. So we have these medication tools, which is, which is interesting. But one of the reasons that I talk so much about moderation in the book is because there are many drugs today that we simply cannot just eliminate from our lives. Smartphones is one of them. Most of us need them to function in our jobs. So how do we use them in a healthy and adaptive way? Food is another example. Obviously, we can't eliminate food. So how do we engage with food in a way that is not addictive, but that, of course, allows us to eat in a healthy way? Sex is another one for people with sex addiction. You know, I think a part of a healthy life for many people is to have some sexual activity. But how do we then differentiate, you know, addictive sexual activity from healthy sexual activity? So this question of how to moderate has really become very essential for modern life. Oh, that makes complete sense. And I wish I had had access to you 20 years ago when I was first trying to understand this topic. I would sit at a library and try to navigate through books. And I just wish your books were right there because this is very clear and helpful. I just want to go to, you've got this, um, it's a chart that has chocolate, sex, nicotine, um, amphetamines on it. Um, it talks about how much dopamine is released with chocolate versus sex and drugs. 
And you also see that learning increases dopamine firing in the brain. So I wonder where do healthier habits like learning or exercise fit into this chart? And should we be cautious of too much learning or too much exercise? Do we get the surplus with healthy things as well? Yeah, great question. So, so how do we differentiate good dopamine from bad dopamine or healthy adaptive sources of dopamine from less healthy or adaptive sources? Um, the chart you're referring to has to do with an experiment where they placed a probe in a rat's brain to figure out how much dopamine is released in the rat's brain when it ingests certain substances. And um, you know, dopamine is a neurotransmitter, which means it's a, it's a molecule in the brain that's intimately associated with pleasure, reward, and motivation. Neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge the synapse between two neurons. So neurons communicate through electrical signals, but they don't touch end to end. There's a little gap and that's to be able to regulate and control those signals. And that gap is bridged by little chemicals that are called neurotransmitters. Dopamine is probably the most important neurotransmitter involved in reward motivation and pleasure. It's not the only neurotransmitter, but it's probably the final common pathway. So measuring dopamine in a rat's brain with ingestion of certain substances gives some idea of how reinforcing that substance is. And as you saw, we, we all have tonic baseline amounts of dopamine firing in our brain. So it's not as if we have no dopamine and then we get dopamine. We're always firing a little bit of dopamine and it's how dopamine changes either above or below baseline firing that creates our emotional states. When dopamine goes above baseline, that's the feeling of pleasure motivation, reward. When dopamine goes below baseline, that's the feeling of craving, irritability, anxiety, restlessness. And what that, that experiment showed is that chocolate increases um, dopamine firing above baseline about 50 units. Sex is about hundred units. Um, nicotine, I think is 150. Cocaine is 250 and amphetamine is a thousand. So you get some sort of sense of sort of relative um, reinforcing potential of those different drugs. Now, importantly, there's also this idea of a drug of choice. So what makes your dopamine go up to 100 might not make my dopamine levels go up to 100. So there's also that inter-individual variability. But getting to your question about sort of exercise or learning, these are activities that are not immediately releasing dopamine with the sti initial stimulus, they, they come as sort of an after effect, which is why I talk about pressing on the pain side of the balance in order to reset our pleasure pathways to the pleasure side. So remember repeatedly pressing on the pleasure side has the gremlins hopping on the pain side and basically resets our, our thresholds to the side of pain. But if we intentionally engage in challenging, painful or anxiety provoking activities, that is, we press on the pain side, then those same neuroadaptation gremlins will hop on the pleasure side to bring us ultimately to this point. So that's the good kind of dopamine. And typically that means, in, you know, again, in small doses, doing things that are hard. Learning is usually effortful and hard. Um, exercise is usually effortful and hard. Um, exposing ourselves to things that we're afraid of is effortful and hard. And all of that in small doses um, is good for us because then you don't get your dopamine from the initial stimulus. 
you get it from the opponent process stimulus. And one of the other um, you know, experiments that I talk about in the book, which is kind of horrific to read because you know, it's very inhumane to, to dogs and it was done some time ago, but to me, it's, it's a really fascinating experiment. Basically they took dogs and they exposed them to a very strong electrical shock. So they pressed down very hard on the pain side of the balance. And initially after the initial response, you know, the dog was sort of wary and alarmed, you know, defecated and urinated on itself, kind of horrible. But what's really fascinating is that with the second exposure of the shock, the brain compensated by tipping the balance of the side of pleasure and the dog exhibited a, what, the, what the researchers called a fit of joy right after being released from, from the, 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 the electrical harness, the dog bounced up and down, was happy, you know, was, and that's, that's not just like, oh, thank goodness, you know, I'm no longer being shocked. That's actually a physiologic reaction to a stressor, that there's this opponent process reaction or this counter effect leading to you know, euphoria and dopamine. It's the same thing people get a runner's high or what have you. Now, is it possible to overdo painful stimuli to get addicted to exercise? Absolutely. And I see patients like that who run so much or exercise so much that they end up injured and yet keep going. That's a situation where you have too much of a good thing, even if it's, you know, sort of a painful stimulus can be bad. So you could also say that someone who enjoys working as well, is that the same thing? You get addicted to the stress of your job? Is it the same idea? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, again, I think being very engaged in your work and finding meaning and purpose in your work can be a really good source of dopamine, but anything that leads to you know, that kind of reinforcement loop has the potential to become addictive. And one of the points of Dopamine Nation is the way that technology has made all of these behaviors, including work, potentially more potent and hence more addictive. So for example, the way that we're now measured um, in the metrics used for work are often remote from the meaning of the work itself. Uh, so for example, you know, we may, for example, in, in medicine, we actually get metrics telling us how many patient hours we've billed and how much above our target and we get graphs. And all of a sudden you can begin to monetize that experience in a way that's in and of itself reinforcing that is separate from the actual reason for doing the work in the first place. And that can then lead to this kind of vicious cycle of compulsive over-engagement or addiction. So being aware of what's pushing us too far is important. And then when you say, when you find something that pushes you too far, you try your 30 day fast. And then can you explain your dopamine acronym that you have um, so that we know how to go through the steps? Sure. So, I mean, I think the first step, the, the D of dopamine stands for data. And that's just trying to be very honest with ourselves about what is the behavior or the substance that we have a conflicted relationship with. Either it's led to problems in our lives or we just know we're consuming too much of it um, or spending too much time getting it or thinking about it or covering it up. 
Um, and then be re being really honest with ourselves about exactly what the data are, you know, how, how often are we using it? How much are we using? What are we using? Um, you know, what are, what, what's the consumption level? Then the O of the dopamine acronym stands for objectives. Why do we use? What does it do for us? Does it numb us? Does it give us pleasure? Uh, does it help with depression? Does it help us sleep? You know, what, what is the thing that's, that's driving our use? The P of dopamine stands for problems associated with use. So then being really honest with ourselves, like what, what is it that's not working? Maybe it worked initially and it's not working anymore because of this pleasure pain balance, or maybe it's still kind of working, but now we're lying about it or our spouse is unhappy with it, or we're not able to be present for our children in the way that we wanna be. And then the A of dopamine stands for abstinence, where we basically do a dopamine fast. We take a break from that substance or behavior for one month. Now, one month is the ideal because typically it takes about 10 to 14 days for acute withdrawal to resolve, for the gremlins to, to start to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. Um, and that's why I, I, I say a month, because by the time folks get to week three or four, they're really noticing the benefits of not using. And that's the key to get past that initial withdrawal and get to that point where you're like, ah, you know, I, I get it now. I was totally hooked and I didn't see it. Um, but if you can't do a month because of, you know, work or whatever the circumstances is, you can't totally eliminate the device, for example, maybe just eliminate the apps that are, that are causing difficulty or some aspect of it that's causing difficulty and, or maybe just eliminate it for a single day. I mean, even, you know, a digital Sabbath one day a week can be really instructive for folks. And then just quickly, the rest of the acronym, the M stands for mindfulness. That means really just sitting with those uncomfortable and restless feelings when we're in acute withdrawal and noticing but not trying to change those feelings, not trying to reach for something to get rid of that feeling. This is a really hard thing to do. Um, the I of dopamine stands for insight. This is where we become aware of just how addicted we, we are or we were, something that's really hard to do when we're in it. Um, the N stands for next step. So if we make it that full month, then we think about, okay, do I wanna to continue to abstain or do I wanna go back to using and if so, how do I want to use? Most of my patients want to go back to using their drug of choice. They want to use less. They want to use differently. So this is where we talk about self-finding strategies and specific barriers that we can put in place um, so that we don't get caught up in that cycle of compulsive overconsumption. And then, you know, when we give it a try, and that's the E of the dopamine, that's the experiment part. We, we say to ourselves, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna drink at home. I'm only gonna drink with friends. I'm only gonna drink wine. I'm only gonna have one glass. And we just see if we can do it. And you know, then a month later, sort of collect the data again and, and start again. And only you know if you can do it or you can't do it. Right, I mean, it can be very helpful to talk to a professional or to talk to a friend or to do it together with a friend so you can you know, um, keep each other accountable. Um, cause it's, it's a hard thing to do alone all by yourself. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And then there's the tolerance idea that comes in as well that, um, that, you know, when you finish watching a Netflix show and you know, it's great and you miss it and you want to go back and watch it again, it wasn't as good as the first time. What, what's happening there with tolerance with this? Yeah. So remember those neuroadaptation gremlins on the pain side of the balance? And I said, well, if you wait long enough, you know, after 
that come down feeling right after you turn off your show, they hop off and your balance is restored and you're kind of the craving to watch another show goes away and you kind of move on with your day. But the thing about those gremlins is that they don't, once they've been created, they never disappear. Um, they're hanging around at the base of that teeter totter or that balance and they waiting for a chance to get on the balance again. So then next time you watch that show, they remember it. And not just one little gremlin hops on. Now you got two or three gremlins, right? They're going, oh yeah, I remember that. And so you get less of a tip to the pleasure side and the tip to the pain side gets stronger and longer with repeated use. And this has been shown experimentally. And I talk about this in the book and I think we can all relate to it. You know, that, oh gosh, that first time was so golden. And when I went back to it, it was like, eh, you know, maybe it was still good, but certainly by the third or fourth time, not quite as exciting. This is brilliant. So I just want to close out our questions. And, you know, this has been so powerful for me to have a look at this on a deeper level and maybe think about giving our listeners something that they can apply um, to take away with. And I know you talk openly about something you stopped doing in the book that you enjoyed. And when I first came across you, someone put an article on my car on the hiking trails after a night out, we were talking about how addictive these social media apps were. And someone said, you got to read this article. And then I was right on the tail end of stopping something that I love doing when I found your 30 day fast. I didn't even know about it. Um, but for someone looking at, at maybe trying this, what should they be aware of? Well, one thing that I should say, that's really important. If it's um, alcohol or a benzodiazepine like Xanax or Valium or an opioid, um, this is something that you should probably do with the help of a medical professional, because once people are physically dependent, they, they, they cannot stop just cold turkey because they could go into life-threatening withdrawal. So for those substances, if people have developed a physical dependence, it would actually be dangerous to stop it all of a sudden. But if they haven't developed a physical dependence on those drugs, it's just a psychological dependence. And virtually for you know almost every other drug I can think of, including behaviors, um, you know, like reading romance novels, which was, was my behavior that I talk about in the book, um, you know, it's okay to just stop and set a quit date, commit to it, you know, let other people know, and just know that you're going to feel worse before you feel better. But that bad feeling is time limited. If you can just endure it and get through those first 10 days or so, you will come out um, of, you know, the end of that long, dark tunnel, and you will start to feel better. And I think you will be surprised at how much better you can feel. And you'll then also be able to look back and decide, freely decide, and we talk so much about these um, algorithms and how they're really turning us all into people with addiction. And it's really true. We, we sort of lose the ability to choose when we're caught up in this vortex of compulsive overconsumption. So when you do the dopamine fast and you get some distance, then you have the ability to choose how you want to use it in the future and to sort of change your environment. That's the key thing. If we just rely on our willpower in the moment, most of us will fail. We need to put barriers in place before we feel the desire to use it so that we are, we're able to put sort of press the pause button between desire and action to get the drug or use the drug. And then when people get to that 30 days and they can, you know, assess for themselves, whether they want to continue to abstain or whether they want to go back to using and sort of how that would look. 
Any final thoughts, like what you raised your children with? What should everybody in the world know about the pleasure, pain, balance, and dopamine nation and dopamine deficit? What are your final thoughts for us? I think my final thought is that, you know, the, the pleasure pain balance is, it's, it's one of the oldest and most evolutionarily conserved parts of our brain. It's been the same for millions of years. It's the same across species. It's essentially the same in the lizard brain as it is in our brain. Um, what distinguishes us from, you know, um, let's say a lizard, is these great big frontal lobes that we have. And those frontal lobes are very important in both being aware of what our pleasure pain balance is doing and also modulating the pleasure pain balance. And so one of the, I have a whole chapter on this in my book and I, I really believe in this. One of the ways that we can both be aware, better aware of what our pleasure pain balance is doing and also control it is to tell the truth, to tell the truth about things large and small. And it's a really great trick for managing compulsive overconsumption. And I talk in my book about all the different ways neurobiologically telling the truth actually allows our prefrontal cortex to make better connections with our lizard brain so that we can really manage pleasure and pain in this crazy dopamine saturated environment. So very helpful. I'm going to put the links to your book, Dopamine Nation, in the show notes. And if anyone wants to reach you, is the best way through your Stanford website or are there other places to reach you? Yeah, probably. I mean, people can, you know, could email me. I'm getting a lot of emails, so I answer them as I can. Um, I would ask just people that people be patient. Got it. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today, for your research and all you're doing for the world. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 